everyone. Welcome to the Farm Commons podcast, where we explore timely and important legal issues and questions facing the farming community today. For community-based farms with a focus on sustainability, managing legal risks is especially important as many innovative farm enterprises like community-supported agriculture programs, on-farm suppers, and gardening classes, and unique arrangements for land access and employment do not fit neatly into our legal system, leading to vulnerability. But through legal education, we can cultivate greater resilience for your farm business so that you can continue to grow in ways that best support you, your relationships, and your community. At Farm Commons, we'll show you why and how. Thanks for tuning in. Hi everyone, welcome to the Farm Commons podcast. This is Eva here. I'm a farm law educator at Farm Commons and I'm your host. (laughs) Today is a very exciting day because we are welcoming our first guest to to the podcast, to our show. And our first guest is Ian McSweeney of the Agrarian Trust. So Ian is the organizational director of the Agrarian Trust, which is a national 501c3 land trust with multiple local community land commons across the United States. So if land trust and community land commons are new terms to you, don't worry, we'll be exploring them in our conversation today. So Ian has a very impressive land access background. He served as the executive director of the Russell Foundation, which is a private foundation that's focused on assisting landowners and farmers through customized approaches to farmland ownership, conservation, management, as well as stewardship. And the work that he did there included the completion of more than 100 farmland focused projects that protected over a big acreage here, 12,000 acreage of land and raising over $16 million, all aimed towards providing benefit to the farmland, farmers, communities, and the local agrarian economy. He's also served on a number of zoning, conservation, planning, and agricultural boards and commissions, especially in his home state of New Hampshire. And now Ian serves as the director of the Agrarian Trust, where he leads up the Agrarian Commons program. So two distinct projects. Well, one's an organization and then the Agrarian Commons is a project within the Agrarian Trust. And we'll be focusing on the Agrarian program, the Agrarian Commons program today. So this conversation you know, we at Farm Commons are especially excited to be having because it's building on things that we've been thinking about at, at our organization in regards to the opportunities available to us to cultivate greater social justice through non-traditional land access strategies. And we'll be building on what Rachel and I discussed in episode 37. If you haven't checked that out, check it out. (laughs) It's the previous episode to this one. And with Ian, we'll be sharing some real stories of folks pursuing alternative land tenure strategies that support resilient communities, what they did and how they did it. So hi, Ian. It is such a pleasure and an honor to be sharing in this conversation with you today. Hello, Eva. Great to be here. And thank you for having me. Uh, I look forward to the conversation and Yeah, grateful to connect. 
Awesome. Well, to get started, I think it would be great if you could share a bit about your background, um, who you are and how you got to where you are today, especially within this realm of land access and land tenure work. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So, so my, my work has all been kind of centered on the belief that we are disconnected from land and disconnected from each other. And really, that is a uh, foundational need to a healthy um, community, healthy food system, healthy and viable agriculture, uh, you know, much more that we work on uh, all depends upon our relationship to land. And in this country, we, we kind of frame relationship to land in uh, private property rights and ownership and tenure in land. So really how to think about uh, ownership, tenure and equity structures uh, is, is central to my work. And, and it didn't start there. Um, I, I've always had this belief we need to reconnect with land. I had went to school and, and started with a career in social work and, and worked in a variety of settings, uh, bringing about outdoor environmental programs to uh, bring kids and adults from residential and school programs out into the environment onto land to connect with land, to con connect with one another. Um, did that for a little over a decade, uh, then saw kind of the, the need to think about those systems, those systems of ownership of tenure. And really that's the foundation as I just described and, and kind of to get at the root cause of things, we need to work on that foundational structure. So left social work, uh, got into real estate uh, got real estate license, started to work, you know, initially just in residential sales, got my broker's license, then founded a brokerage that brought together kind of conservationists, farmers, and community stakeholders to, and developers to kind of come together up front, develop conversations, shared values, and then kind of work on planned development, planned community work that prioritize conservation, prioritize agriculture, um, and did that for a few years, uh, and then was offered the opportunity to come on and be the executive director of the Russell Foundation, this private family foundation, the Russells, um, focused in the Northeast part of this country, um, and they hired me on as the director, the staff person to lead the work um, at first, that, that work was focused on more general land conservation and more typical work of conservation land trusts. Over time, we evolved that to be really focused on agricultural work. So conservation of farms, transfer of farms, tenure of farms to farmers, uh, and facilitating that work. So we we didn't take ownership of anything. We were just facilitating with my time and our money. And my time was for raising additional money and kind of bringing together parties and transacting the real estate side of things. Um, the Russell Foundation was set up as a spend down foundation, which was really a, a wonderful approach that, that they wanted to put their money to work directly at that point in time. Um, 
It lasted for a little over a dozen years and they didn't want to spend, have me spend time or their time to raise funds to perpetuate the life of the foundation. They wanted all the dollars to go directly to the work on the ground and make as much of an impact over a period of time as possible. Um, so we did that when we spent the, the corpus down. So when the money was gone, then the foundation closed. Um, and as the foundation closed, my role ended. Um, I had towards the tail end of the foundation, um, I had come on and connected with the growing trust as an advisor and board member. And then so as uh, foundation work ended for me, uh, I was able to transition into be director of Agrarian Trust, and that was just over three years ago now. And Agrarian Trust at that point in time had one other staff person involved. Um, and then from that point three years ago to today, uh, we've grown to now we have eight staff people working throughout the country, and we're in process of hiring uh, development director now. Uh, there's an open position for that and a new role as a commons alliance facilitator, which I can get more into when we talk about the agrarian commons. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ian, for that walk down, very inspirational walk down memory lane. <laughs> the, the word that came to mind as you were speaking was conduit. And I think that has that sounds to me like it's been a theme across your work and connecting the youth to the land, people to homes, and then a foundation to the impact that they want to create in terms of um, land access and preservation and how lucky to as that foundation spent down out of existence to then um, join the agrarian trust at a time when they we're open to, to growth. So um, really great momentum that you've been able to uh, cultivate across your career. And I think that that conduit aspect of land access is very important. Um, making the connections with people, the actual property or the land, um, and then also the financials to make that possible. And I'm thinking about all of that in very stark contrast to what's going on in the property, housing, and farmland market today, where things are moving very quickly. And um, I mean, just from my personal experience right now, my partner and I were leasing farm a farmland property with a house, and we are buyers right now. We have a realtor. You know, we've gotten pre-approved for a couple of mortgages. We're working with our realtor to find some properties within our price range. And the first thing she told us was the market is crazy right now. People are buying sight unseen. Um, you have to be very quick. If you, if you see a property that you want, you need to make an offer quickly. And many people are offering, you know, 10 to $15,000 or more above the asking price. And so you know, what we're seeing right now in 2021 is very, is a very different pace, very different goals, very different um, structure and ethos than what you, an agrarian trust, and sounds like the Russell Foundation have cultivated over um, time. And so maybe this is a good time to talk more about <laughs> the agrarian trust and the work that you're doing there today. And maybe if you could um, share some of 
the the goals and the guiding um, philosophies that that steer your work there. Yeah, happy to. And and right, it's it's a crazy time in real estate, and and it's you know it's it's only well much of what this pandemic has done is is you know amplify and and kind of put. Uh, things under a microscope that were already pretty extreme in many ways. So, you know, farmland values uh, have always been kind of out of reach of farmers in many ways. And, and they, you know, for the last few decades, national per acre values of farmland have increased year over year. Um, well, you know, we all know farm incomes haven't done that and they have not kept pace at all with that. So, the reality is that you know farmland is becoming less and less affordable, if it ever was in our lifetime, but less and less affordable for farmers to secure ownership or some type of tenure on. So it's you know how to address that is a real challenge in present times when things are so um, exaggerated in in kind of. Uh, kind of the real estate market, how we value real estate, um, and, and kind of how we value agriculture in many ways. So, you know, finding ways to address that can be difficult. Um, and it's, and it's difficult for us agrarian trusts. It's difficult for land trusts and nonprofits across the country. You know, most don't work in a uh, kind of pace that can compete with the real estate market or with developers say. So, you know, much of our work uh, and much of the work of many other land trusts depends upon a uh, kind of aligned and participating seller where they're willing to wait a little longer say to allow some fundraising to take place and or they're willing to provide some uh, discounted bargain sale on the property, which, you know, selling to a land trust that's a nonprofit can have some tax benefits for them doing that. So there's advantages for them to do that, but it does kind of require that participation of a seller in many ways and vast majority of the time. There have been a, a few cases when I was with the Russell Foundation where we worked with partners to acquire property that was at a foreclosure sale. So we went to the auction, you know, and had to kind of outbid others to acquire property. Um, and there's, you know, one case with the agrarian commons model where we've, we've pursued and acquired a property that was on the real estate market for sale and kind of had to put it in an offer and compete with other buyers and have another that we're pursuing now that's on the market and, and we're hoping to submit and be the, you know, the accepted offer, but we shall see. But, but generally it, it takes that participating seller to, to do that work. And, and really, you know, for us in this work, it's, it takes that participating seller, it takes, you know, raising of capital um, of some type, uh, some amount, uh, depending on the project, and it takes a real community approach. Um, there's not funding on a public level for uh, the work we do or the work of other community land trusts across the country. There is funding, never enough, but there is funding for the work of conservation land trusts. There's federal programs, there's state programs, 
that fund conservation easement work or protection of natural land, lands. Mm -hmm. um, but there's not funding to, to support the fee title acquisition of farmland that exists. So it really takes kind of a community and a fundraising campaign and time and participation from many to make that possible. And, and that looks quite different from one project to the next and happy to kind of dive into some projects and share more, but as a general kind of that's, that's some framing. Yeah, no, that, no, I think that's great. Um, for our listeners, I do think it would be helpful to take a step back and maybe paint a picture of what is a land trust and then also how an agricultural conservation easement that could be held by a land trust differs from a conservation easement that there is federal funds to support. Um, how about we move into that space just so we can have some working knowledge and definitions. And so I can also brush up yeah, <laughs> on this yeah, information because it's not every day I get to talk to a land trust expert. So this would be great. Yeah, happy to. And, and really, so for a land trust, um, a land trust is a nonprofit 501c3, generally a nonprofit entity that uh, is kind of has a mission that works under a IRS tax code 170H uh, around the protection of natural resources generally. So, you know, it, farmland soils are a natural resource, water quality is a natural resource, scenic viewshed, uh, you know, so things like that are what a land trust operates under generally. Um, there are two types of land trusts, and it's really an interesting kind of history and backstory to them that I'd like to bring forward a little bit uh, now is, so there's conservation land trusts that are, um, oldest conservation land trust was trustees of reservations in Massachusetts, then followed by the Forest Society in New Hampshire. Both are a little over a hundred years old now. Um, and since then, there's been land, conservation land trusts that have developed across the country and across the world. Uh, some work very locally to a one community, some work you know, in a region or a state, some work across the country or internationally. There's uh, supports from organizations like the Land Trust Alliance, an alliance that provides education, policy, outreach work. And generally, conservation land trusts are focused on protecting natural resources and open space, either through fee title ownership, which generally looks more like uh, parkland, you know, or, or wildlife habitat land. And, and that's not always the case, but that's more times than not the uh, ownership of land that conservation land trusts take on. Um, they then also work with a conservation easement that I can share more on in a minute, but that is certain rights in property that prohibit certain uses to protect that property. And so they'll acquire conservation easements and or acquire fee title to property to protect natural resources. And as I kind of alluded to before, there's different funding programs, uh, federal, state, and private uh, programs that fund conservation land trust work. And there's several thousand conservation land trusts across the country. 
and and there you know always could be more conservation land trusts, or always could be more funding and support towards conservation land trusts. But but really, they they do a great amount of work and have created a great impact to protect our natural resources, um, and and receive support in many ways for that. Um, on the other side are community land trusts uh, that exist um, across this country as well. Uh, there are only a few hundred community land trusts though. Uh, community land trusts are focused on ownership of property and then lease conveyance of property. Uh, lease conveyance to allow leaseholders to operate on that property. Most community land trusts are focused on uh, the built environment. So many community land trusts work on housing, say, for example, and they provide uh, what's called a ground lease in many cases to residents of that community to own their house um, and have a lease on the property that's held by that community land trust. And the community land trust in doing that work uh, can provide uh, affordability, security, and equity to the, the community members who, who live on that community land trust. And, and so that's the work of community land trusts. As I mentioned, they do not uh, receive federal or state money for the fee acquisition of land. Um, and they're really focused on you know, human equity and, and kind of you know, human needs on the land and connecting people to the land and providing land for people in many ways. Um, and, and they work from, you know, urban to rural parts of this country. Um, community land trusts were started in the late 60s by new communities, a uh, community land trust in Georgia. Uh, that community land trust has, um, been excluded and, and, and kind of treated with uh, racist discrimination from day one to present day. They've had uh, finally, you know, generation later, many decades later after their founding, they, they were awarded uh, one of the largest settlements against the USDA uh, in the history of the USDA. Um, so they're Community land trusts, new communities particularly, but community land trusts in general are not receiving any of the supports and in many ways are marginalized compared to the conservation land trust world. And community land trusts don't have that uh, scale to them. Many are localized to place, so there's not statewide community land trusts. Uh, there's not national community land trust. There's not a, an alliance of community land trust to support education and policy and, and network support in the way there is for conservation land trust, but both operate across the country um, at quite a different scale and having somewhat different values and purpose to their work but they essentially operate in a similar way. They're nonprofit entities that hold property for, to complete their mission. Um, and, and so those are land trusts. Uh, you know, there's also kind of in addition to land trusts, there's governmental entities that function in many of the same ways from local town to state to federal government who also own land or hold easements for similar purposes described. 
but the you know land trusts are the nonprofit structure that carries out this work. Um, and so now to, to the other kind of question of you know easements. Um, so I touched on, but conservation easements uh, are are kind of a tool that prohibits certain uses on the property to protect the property for for the mission work of that land trust that falls under natural resource protection. So they prohibit things like subdivision, development, extraction of resources on the property. Um, and they prohibit those permanently. And the land trust holds those, those rights to those. So in effect, the land trust acquires the rights to develop the property. Uh, and then they hold those essentially extinguishing those rights. And then the land trust is monitoring those rights to make sure that landowner doesn't doesn't violate the easement and, and begin to develop the property or extract from the property or such. And they they call that monitoring stewardship of the land. And it's essentially kind of monitoring and enforcing the terms of the conservation easement. And, and so that is a conservation easement. A conservation easement um, is, is something that, that was uh, kind of developed within IRS code and is kind of named a conservation easement within IRS code. So that's why it is called a conservation easement. The trustees of reservations uh, started the work first. They created this conservation restriction that predates IRS enabling legislation of conservation easements. They continue to call it what they initially called it a conservation restriction where the vast majority of others use a conservation easement. Um, conservation easements to meet uh, IRS code have to include certain language. And then if landowner is giving a discounted bargain sale or they're donating conservation easement and they're uh, claiming a, a IRS tax benefit for that donation, there's additional IRS language required in the easement. And if there's certain funding sources involved that may also layer on other language. And then really beyond that, the conservation easement is an agreement between the land trust and the landowner. So from one land trust to the next, conservation easements are gonna look a little different because each land trust works a little differently and each property is a little different in its characteristics. So there's, you know, there are individual contracts that are then permanently encumbering the deed to the property. Um, and, and so those are conservation easements, really a, an agricultural conservation easement is still in its pure sense, a conservation easement as well. The difference is that an agricultural conservation easement has agriculturally friendly language and, and kind of has purposes that are tailored towards agriculture. And so some land trusts, uh, you know, have been at agricultural conservation easements for several decades, and they're very kind of sophisticated and in tune with the farming community in the agricultural language within the agricultural easement. Others are 
you know, newer and getting started or, or have only done a handful of agricultural conservation easements. So again, the agricultural conservation easements look quite different from one land trust to the next and from one property to the next, but they're essentially kind of a conservation easement that uh, prioritizes agriculture. And really the way most agricultural conservation easements work at prioritizing agriculture is the same that protection of farmland soils, the protection of habitat and ecosystem, and then kind of um, spelling out how farming is allowed and the supports allowed for farming. But by and large, they're just a tool that prohibits uses that might uh, be detrimental to agriculture, but they are not uh, requiring agriculture or stipulating agriculture or supporting agriculture. There are definitely a handful of small handful, but a handful of land trusts that go beyond that and look to things like how do we make farmland affordable? So there's a handful of land trusts that also have added on to the agricultural conservation easement, something that's called an option to purchase at agricultural value, an OPAV, uh, that addresses the affordability of farmland. So it restricts the value of farmland to what is affordable for farmers to acquire. So, you know, some kind of go beyond easement to address affordability, others, uh, look at kind of farming practices and will say, you know, in their agricultural conservation easement, they're going to prioritize organic agriculture or biodynamic agriculture. And they're spelling that out in the easement as well. A very small number are doing that. Um, and, and then there's, there's some that are requiring active agriculture and, and saying that, you know, this, this land is protected for agriculture and it also must be used for active agriculture. And if it is not, the land trust has the ability to, maybe it's, you know, maintain the fields as open so they don't grow up in the forest, or maybe it's kind of step in and find new farmer to ensure the, the land is actively used but that's a small number of land trusts that, that do that as well. So some have kind of added on to agricultural conservation easements, additional aspects that further support farmers in different ways, but it's really a small handful that do that type of work. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And gosh, Ian, very helpful explanations of the nuances between conservation land trusts, community land trusts, conservation easements, and agricultural easements. And I think what you're highlighting is the creativity that is available in the process of setting up an agricultural easement through working with the community land trust, because I, I really appreciated what you said that um, one agricultural easement will look different than the next and that, you know, depends on the relationship between the land owner and the land trust and what the vision is for what kind of agriculture is supported and allowed and that really resonates with our approach to you know, strong business agreements at Farm Commons. You know, we never advocate getting a model, using that, you know, template or model agreement, you know, as it is and just applying it to your farm operation and your business, but rather 
use the model or the template for inspiration and then go through the hard questions of what is your farm business's goal? What is the landowner's goal? Um, you know, what are, what are our fair expectations here? And dialing it back a step, what do all the parties see as being fair? You know, how can we come to a shared understanding of what is fair and right and good um, in this, this land access or business relationship? So really appreciate that. Um, agricultural easements and the work of folks like you all at Agrarian Trust help to carve out a space and provide the support for farmers and landowners to have those hard conversations, to get on the same page, to really figure out a vision for what's possible. And then <laughs> I have in my notes in all caps, figure out how to finance the, mm -hmm. the project and so um that is a big question because you know that fee that fee what the fee title ownership like that that changes hands through the mechanism of payment and um but you know money makes things work in in our capitalistic society and i think that's a really important piece to talk about and one of the reasons you know, we're so excited that our conversation is following our previous podcast episode where we talked about um, farmers getting together, crowdfunding, um, you know, receiving gifts, whether it's gifts of land or monetary gifts and, and how to keep track of all that, legally speaking. Um, you know, you talked about the IRS codes and, you know, what goes along with agricultural restrictions but of course there's gift taxes and um, associated <laughs> paperwork and processing to consider legally speaking and so I'd love to transition now to hearing about um, some of the the projects that you at Agrarian Trust through the Agrarian Commons model and maybe you know a more spelled out description of the Agrarian Commons and also how you're able to make the money work for these projects. Yeah, happy to. And let me just add a little bit more to our last conversation and really ground it to likely most of your listeners is that, so right, a, an easement is something that permanently restricts certain uses of the land, like development of the land. So in doing that, it limits the value of land. I, I touched on that. Uh, OPAV, that option to purchase at agricultural value that really gets at affordability in farming uh, communities. But, you know, all easements um, are encumbering the land and limiting the rights associated with property ownership. They're removing certain rights, like the right to develop the land and the right to extract resources. And in doing that, it, it lowers the market value of the land. So, you know, farmland that is already under a conservation easement is likely to be selling for much less than farmland that does not have an easement attached to it because the farmland that does not have an easement could be chopped up and developed into a subdivision say or the soil could be trucked off and sold so you know there is savings for farmers to look at farmland that's already under an easement um, and there's also a great reason to think about uh, collaborating with land trusts who would acquire an easement and thus lower the land value, thus bringing kind of the remaining costs of the land down for a farmer to then acquire the land. Um, 
the the caution there would be is that easements are a permanent document encumbering the land. So as with any property sale, you know, the buyer beware, uh, really spend a lot of time looking at that easement language and talking to the land trust to see what is allowed and what is prohibited. Because uh, the unfortunate thing is many easements that were completed some time ago never contemplated agriculture as it operates now, never contemplated renewable energy at all, never contemplated climate collapse, never contemplated kind of the ability and need for farms to adapt for markets and production. So an easement can be very limiting and some easements on farmland are really uh, prohibiting the type of, of agriculture that a farmer may seek to pursue. So, you know, it, and, and it's difficult, near impossible to change that easement as it should be in ways, but it's, that becomes problematic for a farmer looking to get on land sometimes. So, you know, an easement can be a great tool to protect natural resources. An easement can be a great tool to lower the value of land, farmland, but it can also um, restrict land in ways that may be problematic for farmers. Uh, so, you know, really to think about um, that easement going in and, and if that is going to work uh, for the farm operations now and long into the future is really important. Um, yeah, no, those are, those are great tips, Ian, and I just wanted to jump in here because sure. you're making me think of two friends of mine. They're a farming couple, and they live about 45 minutes away from me um, here in the Piedmont of North Carolina, and they had been leasing another plot of land to farm on because the property that they bought, um, part of it part of the tract is under a conservation easement that the previous owner had put in place and the portion of their property that is under a conservation easement has some older growth trees that the previous owner was very active in the historical society in the town. Um, he had identified as being historically relevant to the area and so there's language in their easement that says that that trees of a certain diameter or more cannot be cut down. And so I think my friends missed how important that piece of their, their land purchase was, that easement piece, because they had intended to clear part of that forested space to farm. And when they mm -hmm. realized after the fact that they actually couldn't clear all that they wanted to clear, they had to start looking at other um, land to lease off of their property that they own in order to farm the way they wanted to. And so in essence, they ended up spending the money to purchase farmland and now are also spending money to lease other farmland that they can farm in the way that they want because they can't do so at home. Yeah, yeah, it can really be a challenge. And yeah, yeah that's, that's an example just to, share briefly another example and I think uh, yeah it crops up in in many places so I mentioned up front with that enabling legislation for land trusts includes uh, scenic view shed protection and, and I would argue that scenic is is a difficult word to define right like your definition of scenic might be different than my definition of scenic and I would also argue that um, 
the general public uh, does not know or does not fully understand what a working farm looks like. So a scenic farm, you know, to many might be the hay field with a few cows on it or the, you know, tractor passing once or twice a year, but it may not be the active working food production farm. Um, and people may not see that as scenic. So, so one example, we have one farm that's part of our New Hampshire Grand Commons that uh, acquired a property and, and it had an easement already on it. And, and it had been an agricultural property. Um, and, and all, all they, they're a regenerative organic-based uh, pasture uh, livestock farm. And, and they came onto the farm, they did soil tests, they realized they had to improve the soils and, and so they tilled up land to begin cover cropping the land. And that kind of tilling of the land was seen as uh, non-scenic by neighbors. Um, and, and then after that, they, their practice was to move their animals daily to new pasture. And, and you know, to do that, they're using electric netting as fencing. So the white you know, netting fence, and it moves in small paddocks across the land to daily for you know soil and animal health um yet that white fencing was not scenic to neighbors as well so so those things turned into a court battle that cost tens of thousands of dollars and and required mediation from third parties and you know a long drawn out process for this farm because individuals interpretation of what scenic is differs quite a bit mm -hmm. and the easement already existed and thus it gave kind of requirement that they fall within that scenic but it didn't fully define scenic beyond the way that irs does which is limited so that that in and of itself created a problem and i think for many in the public who don't know what actual food production might look like on a farm and only see an iconic piece of farmland that's the open rolling pasture land say that that scenic uh, issue can be a real problem for many farmers so yeah really you know something to consider as people go farmers go forward and pursue properties under easement mm. um yeah I'm feeling the pain of yeah. that <laughs> of experience just hearing about it. I can't imagine going through that. But yeah, yeah. Um, important tales of caution to help you listeners out there who um, may be in the stages of exploring a potential land purchase or a land lease where there is an, an easement, whether conservation or agricultural, um, and making sure that you read the terms of the agreement and um, if there's any vague areas, you know, having conversations to establish some clarity, at least working clarity, because it can be really hard, like you said, um, for folks who have put in those agreements many years ago to foresee what agriculture would look like today, right. in 2021. Yeah, we can't, we can't tell the future too far and too far ahead. What am I trying to say here? What is it like that people with the magic balls do? For yeah, we can't fortune tell perfectly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, so shifting now to, to kind of give a framing for the agrarian commons and, and to get in some, into some project details. So the agrarian commons as a model for us, as I kind of shared the differences between conservation and community land trust. So we agrarian trust are a 501c3 land trust that falls really within a conservation land trust uh, framework. 
we we feel that uh, you know our values uh, are important to the work we do, and we feel that uh, local equity is important. We feel that human justice is important. We feel that uh, local control and autonomy is important. Um, and as a national uh, a white founded land trust, uh, we don't feel we should be owning land and making decisions and holding equity for farms in community. We feel that we have a role to support that work and guide that work and to bring our resources forward. But really, communities should own the farms that are sustaining them. And farmers should be the center of the decision-making process and farmers should hold equity and autonomy to operate on the ground. So we as an organization did not want to own farms at the national level and have us making those decisions. We felt it's really important that those decisions are held in local community. So the agrarian commons model uh, creates multiple local community land trusts across the country. And those community land trusts are majority lo local controlled. What that looks like is that two thirds of the board is local to the region that that agrarian commons operates in. And one third of the board is leaseholding farmers who are on the farms held by that commons. One third is community stakeholders. And then the last third is agrarian trust. So it's a collaborative process to operate the boards of these local agrarian commons. These local agrarian commons are uh, nonprofit 501c2 entities or 501c25 entities, which there's slight differences between the two, but by and large, those two are land holding affiliate uh, limited scope entities connected to a C3. So a C2 or a C25 has to be connected to a C3 entity and they're limited in scope to they're really just nonprofit landlords. They can hold property, they can manage property, they can steward property and they can lease and rent out property, but they can't operate the farm operation, they, they can't operate programs or have other mission-based work. They're just the land holding container um, for property. And so we're using this 501c2 or 501c25 entities as the agrarian commons legal structure. And they hold the fee title to farms or other food systems properties. Like we see the agrarian commons as being a a vehicle to hold all property that is appropriate and needed to be held in a nonprofit structure for a food system in a region. So from the farmland to farm buildings, housing, food processing, storage, aggregation, education, other components that might be needed in a healthy food system that are real property could be held in these local agrarian commons. And so we, last May of uh, May 1st of last year, we incorporated 12 of these agrarian commons across the country. And these agrarian commons are now these land holding containers to hold property and then, you know, convey lease tenure of that property because they're limited scope. So they can't be operating the farms. We didn't want to set up nonprofit farms 
we think nonprofit farms are great and for-profit farms are great and cooperative farms are great and all the above. And really we saw our work as a land trust in addressing the ownership and tenure piece and feeling that if we can address that ownership and tenure piece around the financial realities of that, around the need for security and affordability and tenure and ability to build equity on the land, that farms of all business structures would be much better off because of that. And really, we, we, we are not wanting to dictate what the legal structure of the farm is and wanting to see all available there, but really feel that farmland needs to be decommodified. It's too expensive and it's out of reach for farmers. Farmland also has to be held in a community commons. We've extracted from farmland for too long. We, we ownership of farmland is held by people outside of community who are not farmers. Like it has to be held as a commons resource in communities. But then really that's the foundation as I kind of opened with that developing a foundational structure for ownership and tenure can then allow a much more viable and healthy food system to take place. And, and that's, that's the work of many other organizations and farms and stakeholders to carry forward who are doing great work there. And we feel our role is just to fit into that ownership tenure piece with this model. So, so that's the agrarian commons model. It's, it's kind of these localized land holding structures. Um, each commons decides what their geographic scope is uh, so some work at a statewide level, some work more regionally. Um, we, we do, so that's a local decision. Uh, we, Agrarian Trust, uh, provide some input influence into the structure and then other aspects are local. So that geographic size is a local decision. We, Agrarian Trust, feel that each, each should be kind of building a scale that's human and community-based. So each agrarian commons over time will hold between four and 12 properties. Locally, they decide what properties and the right number that's a good fit, but that it, for, for us, it needs some level of scale. There's too many community land trusts that exist now that were founded holding one property and are struggling to transition to a next generation. Um, and, and we feel there's great uh, collective power in collaboration and working together from farms, you know, that for farms, a small to mid-sized farm can struggle to afford certain human and equipment costs, right? Like that for a small farm to afford a full-time bookkeeper is impossible, but for four farms to come together and share that cost and have a bookkeeper that covers all their work or certain pieces of equipment or property or other things. So the need for scale on a farm basis, we feel is important. So bringing together multiple farms in a commons that are operating independently as their own businesses, but come together under that shared ownership and board relationship, being part of the commons, allows them to think about other ways to collaborate as well. So that's part of the importance. The other part of the scale issue for us is that Long-term for this commons model, uh, the goal is to provide secure, affordable, and equity-building lease tenure to farmers that then they're, they're paying an affordable lease tenure that's collected by the commons. And if a commons has a handful of farms that they're holding ownership of, they're collecting a handful of lease payments that then 
begins to generate enough revenue that, that that commons can hire on and pay for staff. So over time, as a commons grows, it can begin to be self-sustaining and support itself. Where in the early stages, we a growing trust in partnership with the local community need to raise uh, philanthropic capital to you know, fund the operations, to fund land acquisition in. But over time, we can gradually kind of decrease our support from the trust, financial support, as the commons is collecting its own revenue. And whether that's lease revenue from the farmer who's on the property, whether that's the commons invests in renewable energy and is generating income from that, whether it's future you know, carbon sequestration or ecosystem service payments, but there, there are ways to generate revenue for the commons. The commons is centered in community. So it's bringing, you know, national philanthropic capital back to community to be recycled back into the farm properties where it was, you know, taken from and continues to be taken from far too often. So it's it's creating a model that relocalizes money, relocalizes decision-making prop and and kind of builds a scale that that allows that to happen. Um, so that's the commons. Uh, from one state to the next, there's you know there's state law to be to, to be kind of considerate of. And so we created this national model, uh, the Agrarian Commons. We just a few weeks ago uh, launched a toolkit guide uh, with Vermont Law School that, that provides all the founding documents, provides uh, commentary from these two years of committee work of which Farm Commons was part of uh, to kind of analyze, question, share, and develop these founding documents. Um, and part of that is also the kind of stewardship standards and the lease template uh, that the commons each are conveying lease tenure. Uh, state to state, there's some requirements on what terms are allowed in a lease. So in our ideal situation, it's a 99 year lease tenure for farmers. Um, but some states, you know, limit lease tenure to 15 years or other states, something in between that. So we obviously have to operate within state law that exists. So each commons looks a little different solely because of state law requirements. But other than that is fairly uniform across the country. Great. Gosh, talk about non-traditional land access strategies. This is probably as non-traditional um, as we could get in terms of creativity within each state. Like I really appreciate how you all at Agrarian Trust have identified that you're a white founded organization, um, that you don't want to be holding all of these properties at the, at the top national organizational level, but I've instead taken this very localized, like you said, route where there's Agrarian Commons established in different states based on I'm sure what properties are there, what, you know, what the property owner's interests are. Um, and then thinking so, you know, future, you're th you're doing so much future thinking, you're even considering you all at a grand trust, the grand commons operating on its own um, economic model, you know, where donations from a grand trust and your fundraising model are no longer necessary for each individual commons to operate. And, 
you know, opening up the door to renewables or, you know, lease rates. Um, it sounds like the possibilities are pretty endless, <laughs> which is super encouraging. And I, and I can imagine some farmers who are listening who maybe aren't on land or are actively seeking land or are checking out different properties that they might be compelled to seek out their, their land trust in their state, or if there's an agrarian commons in their state now. And um, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to put a link to that document that you just mentioned that, that, um, agrarian trust put together for the commons where there are all the collaborators on um, and so look out for that link in the show notes listeners and I gotta say when you mentioned Vermont Law School that's where I got my master's I enjoyed so much going out on Thursdays to this event called the feast and field market which is I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. Like circus, festival, farm, farm commune party, <laughs> like all these words come to mind. But, you know, there was CSA pickup night on this land while there was tacos being served and different. There was like a kombucha vendor there every Thursday. And then a local dairy had like, you know, kudzu flour ice cream. And there was a ballet going on of a farm it was called the frog the royal frog ballet all of this was going on <laughs> vermont what a beautiful yeah, <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> um which by the way no bugs because there's like no bugs in vermont on <laughs> a summer evening and all of this amazing local economy driven um culture and environment was on this piece of property called the clark farm that is stewarded by the Vermont Land Trust. And you know, now that you're, you're speaking about the possibilities of a land trust being sustainable into the future and the likelihood of being around in the future by having multiple lease holdings or easement holdings of different properties, I'm realizing that those businesses were all on different sections of the Clark Farm that had been um, parceled out. And so there were different lease holdings for that, you know, multiple hundreds of acreage to each of these different farm operations. And so I've experienced it. It is a magical thing <laughs> when these these farmers can get onto the land and steward it and grow their businesses and build community and generate significant revenue for the local economy. Um, and I also want to let you know, Ian, I saw a notice about the agrarian commons in Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, not too long ago. And when I read the name, the farm name for this agrarian commons, Wendy Acres Farm, I was like, why does that sound so familiar? So this is like a personal side note. I went to school in Middle Tennessee at a small school called Swanee, the University of the mm. South. And at a wedding my senior year, or after I just graduated, we were in Middle Tennessee, and I met Carney and Alfred oh, wow. Ferris, um, oh. who have now, I think, both both have sadly passed. They're no longer with Alfred us. has. Carney's okay. still with us. But, okay. Yeah. That's good news that Carney's still around. Yeah. So sorry to hear about Alfred. But they were just illuminated when we started talking about agriculture and stewardship and the next generation of farmers and they were growing organic grain and so to see what you all have done with their property through the commons and made it available and 
through the legal mechanisms mechanisms you've been sharing in terms of agricultural easements and holdings within the commons in the state for the next generation of Tennessee farmers to take over, which they have, please go check out um, Wendy Acres, tennis tn wendy acres tn.com to hear read a really sweet story about sam and lyle harvey actually i'll just put sorry i'm so excited i'm hitting my mic i'll just put the link <laughs> into the show notes for folks to check out and so everything you're talking about ian about what has been possible through um coalition building um asset mapping and that conduit work that you guys have really established a culture of at agrarian trust has made it possible for farm farm businesses to get established and grow as well as transition their land over to a new generation of of farmers so yeah very inspiring and um, i'd love to wrap up our conversation here with um, tips or insights that you could share with farmers who are interested in um, pursuing land through uh, a community land trust or or land with an agricultural easement on it or through the agrarian commons yeah happy to and yeah wonderful story thanks for sharing that um so yeah it kind of a few items just to jump around quickly is so one um, yeah, there is an opportunity that we will be posting in the next few weeks uh, RFP for um, leasehold farmers for a small farm uh, that we hold on Whidbey Island uh, just outside of Seattle so so those that might want to um, live an island life and yet be a short uh, ferry ride from Seattle and a really robust uh, market and, and uh, kind of community of consumers, uh, there'll be an opportunity soon to, to secure a 99-year lease on a small farm on Whidbey Island held by the Puget Sound Agrarian Commons. So watch for that on the Agrarian Commons website. Uh, the other component that, that we kind of touched on briefly, but let me just share forward uh, quickly, is that uh, many of our projects we engage in crowdsource fundraising for, that funding requires different aspects of funding uh, types to come in, you know, and, and, and we as a growing trust are raising capital with the community to acquire these farms. Uh, we're also doing this crowdsource fundraising to engage a much broader audience. Like last summer, we launched a crowdsource fundraiser for the main agrarian commons, a little Juba agrarian commons. Uh, that's a partnership with the Somali Bantu Community Association to uh, acquire a farm and provide a, a home for this community that has been farming in the Auburn Lewiston area of Maine for the last decade uh, without a home. And it's it's a refugee community that has had generations of, of displacement and seeking a home. So we launched the uh, crowdsource fundraiser, raised the capital needed, acquired the farm. Um, over 1,700 people donated to that project um, in, in the whitest state in the nation, uh, Maine. You know, so, so the need to raise awareness to support all farmers and specifically farmers of color and women farmers is critically important in our society and for us. And, and you know, doing a fundraiser quietly that never engages the public at large 
misses that opportunity to engage a much broader audience in support and provide people the opportunity to, you know, with $5 donations to $1,000 donations or more to participate in a permanent uh, land justice project to transform really the connection to land that people have. The other component to that to really finish with here is that um, the conservation land trust movement since its inception to now has compelled uh, the general public to donate land um, to protect natural resources and habitat and open space. And there's thousands of acres of land donated every year to conservation land trusts across the country. Uh, it's about time that we start donating farmland to sustain ourselves, our communities, our climate, our soils, um, and our farmers. And really, that has not been a movement in this country. That is a movement elsewhere across the globe. And, and there's stories of that on our website and elsewhere. But really, a lot of the crowdsource fundraising projects we do is to raise awareness and compel people to donate yes to that project their you know their small or large financial donation but it's also to get people to think about donating farmland there's many people who have much more land and property and assets than they need and are thinking about how to transition those assets there's a thought and belief that up to 400 million acres of farmland will transition this decade and next in the United States. And much of that farmland is by people who have enough wealth to think about other options besides selling it for full value. Um, and, and so really, you know, urge people to think about uh, donating land, urge people to think about engaging in one of our fundraise projects. We're fundraising for a project in West Virginia right now. Um, and all that's on our website. We're also fundraising for a project in New Hampshire now, um, and that's on our website as well. But really to think about that uh, donation of farmland, um, and there's different ways to do that. And we're happy to uh, talk with landowners and outline the different options available for them. But we really need to think about farmland, food production, and our farmers as sacred to our future to the connection of caring forward culture and supporting communities. And that depends upon all of us participating and donating and giving what we can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, I will drop a link to the Agrarian Trust parent website, as well as the Agrarian Commons for um, the island off of the coast of Seattle. What was the name of that island again? Whidbey Island. Whidbey Island, yes, for any farmers, leasehold farmers who are interested. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, Ian, for the you know the wealth of wisdom you shared about the land trust model, agricultural easements, conservation easements. You know, it's it's very complicated information that you were able to um, succinctly parse out for us to to learn from and. Um, I just want to point out one last thing before we end, and it might be very obvious to our listeners, but we are talking about the agrarian commons on the farm commons podcast. And so I'm thinking about that and I'm like, oh, you know, I feel just as scenic can mean something so different 
to you know person to person commons can mean something so different from person to person and so um, i'm curious to to learn in what the commons is to you and i realize i'm putting you on the spot so i'm gonna go i'll share first <laughs> what the commons means to me to give you a moment um and and thinking about the commons for me personally um i think about just this quote that i that i read when i was studying anthropology in college and it's that wisdom sits in places and when i think about you know the traditional sense of the commons you know land that you know shepherds run their cattle or sheep on collectively and they manage collectively it's a common resource i think about the wisdom in community that can be amplified and um, strengthened through connections and good communication and hard conversations about our values and our goals for, for what we would like to see for our collective future, wherever that may be, in a township, in a county, state level, federal level, global level. Um, so yeah, just, just the wisdom and what that, that wisdom can make possible is really what comes to mind when I think about the commons. So what about you? Ian? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, and so, right, for me, and I, I'd kind of bring this back to the model, the agrarian commons model we've created, because it, it embeds some of these things. So, you know, I believe and, and we believe that that land and the use and stewardship of that land should not be governed by someone from afar who doesn't have connection to the land and may not know anything about agriculture, right? Like the best people to understand and kind of develop systems to use land, to connect with land and to steward land are those that are most closest to that land, the farmers. And, and so, a commons uh, for me is is a community of practice that brings together those that are most central to the land and elevates their voices in the decision-making process and make sure they are participating equally and leading much of the much of the process to determine you know use stewardship and monitoring of land. Um, we really need to seek wisdom from those who have the wisdom most. And that mm -hmm. is, you know, in a general sense to our work, it is farmers in a bigger picture sense, it's indigenous people across the world. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, Farm Commons, we, we work consciously to follow the, the social justice tenant, nothing about us without us. And so I think in both of our work, you know, we we look to the farmers to what to what it is that they know what wisdom they have from running their businesses on the land to influence um, the educational programming that we do about the law, um, because there is so much potential to create our own law between what we agree to do to and for each other. And then also to, you know, on your your end of work to cultivate how we are on the land and what we do with it um, and the indigenous perspective is so important to all of that and from the foundation up because you know the land was tended to and stewarded by indigenous people first and foremost so beautiful well thank you so much ian for your time and um, 
thank you listeners for tuning in. I, I hope that you are inspired to learn more about the Agrarian's Commons model and definitely check out the links in the show notes. Till next time, be well. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Commons podcast. For more information on what you just heard, as well as a variety of farm law guides, models, checklists, flowcharts, and more, visit our website at farmcommons.org. You can also email us at info at farmcommons.org if you have any questions or comments about this podcast or any of our online materials. Thanks everyone for listening and keep on growing.